Usually I like to say behind the scenes stuff, but honestly, at this point that'd just be talking about GTA Online, and I only plan to bring that up once. I want to talk about gameplay instead. You guys cool with that? Because... Because I've been playing the GTA series since 3. And, well, that's not true. I've actually played the old ones. I don't know which ones. Don't ask. Top down. I don't know what they were. They were friends copy. But I've been into the GTA series since 3. And, I, you know, I love playing through Vice City. I love playing San Andreas. I dive into 4. You know, blah, 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 blah. Picked up 5 on the PS3, actually. I was completely down for the series. But GTA 5 is the first time I've ever not had to have a giant asterisk next to enjoying the gameplay. I know what you're thinking. Ah, oh, you're stupid and terrible. I personally think GTA 5 has the best gameplay of the GTA series. It... Let me start by asking you guys a question. I want you to think about the GTAs. 3, Vice City, San Andreas, 4, and uh, let's go ahead and throw the stories games in. Liberty City Stories and Vice City Stories, okay? Now, in those games, there's that one mission, right? And it's just every time you replay it, oh my god, I gotta, oh, I gotta play this mission. Sometimes you might put the game down when you get to that mission. Sometimes you just kind of muscle through. But there's always that, oh, I'm up to this mission. Or... Oh, I'm going to have to play through that mission, right? I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not naming any specific missions because I've noticed it varies from person to person. Some people think it's you know this one and some think it's this one. And it varies across games, obviously. But there's always at least one, right? And that's true for me, too. All the way up into... Well, that's not true. That's, not, uh, that's true for me up to 4 Vanilla. Lost in the Damned and Ballad of Gay Tony, I was, there's none of those in that. But up to four vanilla, there's always at least one ugh, mission. There's none of that for me in five. There's no point in which I think, oh, God, I have to do this mission in five. They're all fun for me. And that's the simplest way I could explain why I enjoy this game so much. But I got other evidence, too. Let's see. Uh, the game starts off with excellent tutorialization, very quickly and efficiently getting across everything you need to know without spending seven hours tutorializing until we get to the second island, four. They learned that lesson. The swapping mechanic is fantastic, very smooth and quick. I, so, for the record, for this recent replay through, I was playing on the PC, and obviously I have a monster machine. But it's great using the swap mechanic and then taking a maximum of ten seconds to just be like... But in mission, it doesn't take 10 seconds. It takes half a second. Bam, you're on the new character. Love that. And, of course, each of the three main protagonists actually plays a little bit differently. Mostly in the virtue of their special abilities, but their special abilities do vary them up a little bit. We've got the inclusion of the personal vehicle system, a.k.a. a vehicle that'll spawn with you as you finish missions or as you switch to a character. You could always save cars at, you know, garages or whatever, and you could insure them, or maybe you could buy them, depending on the game. You could just steal them, obviously. But it was nice to finally have a car I could actually care about and invest in, which, funnily enough, comes along with the car customization options. Being able to not only tune it up to be much better, but make it look like your own. Everybody knows, right, that, you know, you can have the gear that has really good stats, or you can have the gear that looks awesome. Which one are you going to pick, right? I mean, I don't have to explain this to you guys. You know what I mean. It's fun to be able to, to touch up your ride. I like to put on the neon lights underneath them and make each one a color of the character. So Franklin's is green, 
Trevor's is orange, and Michael's is blue. Just a little, like, almost like a player reticule kind of a thing. I don't think you can, you can just tell immediately what theirs is. Just little stuff like that I like to do. You can customize the guns, too, of course. Upgrade those, stylize them. I gave Trevor a bunch of pink guns because I thought it would amuse him. You know, you can change your outfits, naturally. Change a decent amount of hairstyles. Kind of like the San Andreas thing. The game, the, the game drives beautifully. This is my personal favorite driving. I wasn't sure walking into it because San Andreas was the other big contender there. But I think I like the driving in 5 a bit better. It's very arcadey, but it also is very responsive, and that's exactly what I want from driving into GTA. And it's not afraid to let you go full tilt. And, I mean, there's a lot of open terrain and a lot of great city design to allow you to go full tilt in, and I love it. Also, you don't have people randomly jumping in front of your way, like, oh no, there's a car coming. <laughs> Why can they do that? Anyways. We've also got, oh god, we've got mid-mission checkpoints, which, it, which it's not just something that we're carrying forward from Lost of the Damned, but they actually have multiple mid-mission checkpoints at each significant step in the mission. And if you fail a certain checkpoint too many times, you can just skip the mission entirely if you want to. And they've got bonus objectives carried forward from Ballad of Gay Tony. So you got to wait 100% or get a platinum or gold or however you want to think of that. And they've got the ability to replay missions if you want to try a different method or go for that gold thing. And they've got the ability to pause cutscenes in mid-cutscene. And you've got the ability to skip through dialogue and just... It's like they sat and looked at all the things that irritate me in the GTA series and brushed away every single one of those irritants and then added on good stuff on top of that. The missions. I love the missions in this game. I love <laughs> diving down in a submarine to get this thing and, and you know, flying off with a, with a gang, uh, a, a biker on my wing and, uh, you know, rappelling down the IAA building in order to, to res rescue this poor guy and so forth and so on. The mission variety is huge and the missions are generally fun. And... They learned their lesson from GTA 4. One of my biggest complaints there was that they were so scripted that you had to do them a certain way, and in many cases it was almost counterintuitive. Uh, having just recently played through 4 for the lore run, I can tell you there's so many missions where the objective is to chase a car through the city on a predisposed path until you get to the part where, you, where they get out and then you kill them, right? There's at least five missions where that's the mission. And each time it was so boring because you could immediately tell that it's one of those missions. And it's not hard to keep up with them, so you're just driving through the city. Right? Now, there are still scripted missions in five, but they are substantially better hidden. Usually they go out of their way to try and vary it up in some manner. Probably the most obvious scripted mission is when Michael has to shoot a plane. Right? Shoots the turbine of the plane. Plane starts coming down. And then... Trevor has to chase after it. Now, that's a scripted mission. You can't do anything to speed it up. You have to wait for the plane to crash. But there's a lot going on, and they've designed a lot of the traffic around the path you're supposed to be taking at every point in time to help hide the fact that it's scripted. You have stuff to do. Oh, by the way, there's music. I know what you're thinking. Lore, you've lost your mind. There's always been music in the GTA series. Only on the radio. GTA V finally introduced in-game music, custom music designed for the scene or the mission or whatever. When you're planning a heist or when you're scoping out a thing or when you're doing a prep thing or whatever, most missions have music that's not actually the radio. So that when you're running around on foot shooting a, a dozen cops because they're coming after you because you just knocked over a, a, you know, a, a, an armored truck, you have music that can be playing. 
And that's always been one of my well, my little background irritants. Not a huge deal, but it always irritates me, especially in, like, Vice City. You know, your final mission in Vice City, you're gunning down all the people in the mansion. Oh, God, you gotta dodge them, you gotta dodge them. And it's dead silent, because there's no music. So, then, on top of all of that, because I ain't done yet, I ain't done gushing, sorry. Then you had the fact that a lot of the missions have multiple ways to complete them. The fact that you can chase them, or you can shoot them, or you can knock out the tire, or you can run them over, or you can throw a pipe bomb at them, or whatever. There's mul it's what I like to refer to as the all roads lead to Rome quest design. You're always going to end here, and you're always going to start here, but there's a lot of different paths to get to this point. And I haven't talked about the heists yet. I love the heists. Um, there was actually supposed to be more heists in the game, and they never materialized thanks to GTA Online. I'll get to that in a second. And Red Dead Redemption 2. I'll get to that in a second. But the, the heists are so much fun. I, I love the, the planning. I love the setup. I love the, the, the going through the mission. I love the fact that almost every heist has, has multiple ways you can go. Not all of them, but most of them do. And you can just replay them if you want to try out the other method. And you can set them up. There's, there's a surprising amount of permutations on how most of the heists can go, depending on who you bring, what path you take, and how well you do. I love it. It says something that I had to really struggle to come up with complaints about the gameplay of GTA V. The map is one of them. The map is not good. It's uh, It's got that particular thing going for it where it was clearly designed for console, so it just doesn't know how to deal with mouse and keyboard all that well. And it's kind of clunky and kind of has issues. Yeah, You know, it's what it is what it is. And it's easy to permanently skip certain bits of dialogue, even with the mission replay thing, like some of the phone conversation from You hit escape by accident, that's gone. You're never hearing that conversation again. And in several missions, and this has been a GTA standard for forever, you have to drive slowly or outright stop the car to make sure you hear all the dialogue before you hit the next trigger. Although they're better about that than previous games. Usually the dialogue is timed better, so as long as you're driving average speed... You'll, you'll finish the dialogue before you get to your destination. That's not always true. There's a, there's a couple exceptions to that. But the biggest piece of praise I could give this game, the gameplay axis of things, other than, you know, I love playing through it and I never dread any part of it, is the fact that one of my biggest complaints is the fact that there's not more of it. Originally there were going to be... Well, okay, let me stop for a moment. I've done my research, I always do, for these things. I'm sometimes wrong, and I can't always cite sources, but from what I understand, there's supposed to be three DLCs that were supposed to come out for this. They were going to include additional heists, additional missions, additional story. None of that ever happened. We never got any DLC or expansions or anything for GTA V. Now, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, because GTA Online. And you're right, that does take the lion's share of the problem. Although, Red Dead Redemption 2 is the other reason. They'd already started work on RDR 2. So they kind of shuffled a lot of their staff over to that one. But yeah, GTA Online is probably the big offender there. And I don't want to sound like I'm being hard on GTA Online. I'm not reviewing that here. You know, I'm, I don't want to go into that. That's just not part of the rumination. The only relevance is that GTA Online and the stupidly ludicrously large amount of money it made is a big reason why GTA V never got additional content and why I'm legitimately worried about GTA VI in about two years or so. I suppose I've talked too much about the gameplay, though. You guys don't like it when I talk about gameplay. It's not like I 
absolutely love gushing about gameplay lore. Runner, that's the runner part of the equation there, is the game axis. But let's go ahead and talk about the story, the lore in the lore runner part of things. They already did a recession story. That was GTA 4. Now it's time to do post-recession. You know, the recession's over, people are recovering. We need to get back to what really matters, and that's money. Now, the exact quote for the theme of this game is the pursuit of the almighty dollar. I'm going to add on to that a little bit because there's, there's that theme and there's actually a couple other themes as well. But the thing I want to add most on top of that is it's about value. I value um, good video games, you know, good food. I actually need a few surgeries because I got a couple health issues. You know, getting my nose fixed so I can breathe properly would be nice. Um, I value hugs from my niece. I value being able to take care of people. I value... Uh, being able to sleep well at night. Now, some of those things can be procured with money. Some of them basically require money. Some of them I couldn't purchase with all the money in the world. That's the big theme of GTA V, understanding value and what different people respect and value and actually want. Probably the most obvious example of this is, of course, Trevor and uh, Michael, both of whom don't actually want the money, even though they need the money for some of the things they want, just like I do, just like you do. But money itself isn't really the end goal for them. This is also directly contrasted with one of the main villains, David Weston, who values money above all other things. So it kind of tends to be a problem for him. But I don't want to go too far into that. I want to talk about one other thing first, and that's the fact that I'm not going to talk about the NPCs all that much because they're not all that there. They're all satellite characters based upon the core thematic-centric pillar, I don't have a better word for that, of the three main protagonists. This is a story about Michael, Franklin, and Trevor. Now that's fine. I'm not complaining. I'm not you know, saying, oh, it's terrible. But it is something to that, that is so clear, especially on replay. Even characters I remember strongly really don't have that many scenes. I just mentioned Weston, right? Let's see. So there's the scene where he shows up in the torture thing, which is basically just foreshadowing. There's the scene where he, there's actually like three scenes, where he helps you steal some cars and then rips you off for them. Then there's two more scenes. No, actually one more scene, excuse me, with regards to the movie studio, because the other scene, ah, we'll go and give it two scenes. And then there's the finale. Now this is being a little disingenuous, like if I wanted to actually nitpick and say I'd probably get up to like ten scenes, but that's it, and the whole game. He's not even introduced until Act 3, for God's sakes. And that's my point. A lot of the, the, the characters who aren't the main trio, they're mostly in and out. Mostly out. You remember, you remember Stretch? Real question. Do you remember him? <laughs> there are a couple exceptions. Lester being one of the more obvious exceptions. But for the most part, it centers around them. Now, a lot of people over the years have talked about what, what shard of identity, what shard of mentality, what shard of player base that the three protagonists are. I'm going to go and give my own thoughts on this because it's my job and I have my own thoughts on it to give. But I've heard a lot of other interpretations, and basically almost all of them I've heard are pretty valid, too. So I'm not trying to say that mine are right and yours are wrong. I'm just giving, I'm just adding mine to the pile. So I got two ways to think of this. Let's go with the out-of-character thing first. Michael is the player who plays for the story. He wants to see what happens next. He gets invested in the characters, and he wants to, to progress through that kind of thing, right? Which is me. 
Franklin, well, he plays because he wants to enjoy the gameplay. He enjoys the missions. He enjoys the gunplay and the driving. He enjoys the actual structure of accomplishing things, which, which is me. Then there's Trevor, who enjoys just running around, screwing around, and blowing stuff up, and just generally having me, generally mayhem, which is me. I'm sorry, dumb joke, but it's true. I am actually all three of those perspectives, but I've seen plenty of other players who fit neatly into one of those three categories, and I'm curious which one or ones that you fall into. There's another way to look at it, too, though. Michael is the one at the end of his journey. Franklin is the one who has just started his journey, and Trevor is the one who is in the middle of his journey. Now, you might think, well, hang on. That doesn't quite line up with your, what you're about to say. And first of all, what are you doing reading my thoughts? But second of all, it kind of helps to showcase one of the other smaller themes about the work. That the journey doesn't really end until it's actually ended. You don't reach a conclusory point and then your story just stops. Maybe one arc is finished. Maybe one particular path is con has concluded. But you're still there. You're still walking. You're still going. Your story goes on. See... All three main protagonists are unhappy at the beginning of the game. Trevor, eh, actually, if I can be so bold, all three of them are not only unhappy, all three of them are stagnant. They've become sedentary. They're just kind of, you know, whatever. Trevor has certainly been doing stuff, but as GTAO shows uh, in some of the lead-up missions, all he's really been doing is very small-time stuff, not really bothering with large-scale operations, not really getting into it. His heart's just not into it. He's just, you know, whatever. Yeah, ah, go do this for me. Okay, go away. Ah, I'm going to rob this gun store. Okay, now go away. That's it. I want you to compare and contrast that from when he has two trains smash into each other so he can rob a Meriwether cargo. I mean, just the contrast is severe, right? Look at Franklin. He's just running around repoing cars for someone in... What is basically a gray area of legality? They got paperwork, but ultimately there's some... They could probably be... T that is to say, uh, Simeon, or however you say a stupid name, could, could probably be taking the court over that one. I'm sorry, I don't mean to say the name is stupid. He's stupid. And I don't remember how to pronounce it, because he leaves the narrative very quickly. By the time the first heist comes up, he's gone. And canonically, he's killed, but let's not get into that. Then you have uh, Michael, which is the most obvious one. There's this scene which really helps to establish him. He goes out to the pool, and Tracy and Amanda are having a shouting match. And he just goes, and he just sits down, puts on his headphones, grabs some alcohol. It's the beginning of the day. And just, I'm done. And that's all three of them. They're done. They're stagnant. They're, they're sitting still. This leads me, before I go further into this, because the events of the game are, are a kick in the tail for all three of them. And it leads to something that I'm going to refer to as the power trio. See, Michael, Trevor, and Franklin are an amazing trio. Their skills complement each other nicely. Their mindsets complement each other nicely. And they work very well together. They're the power trio. They can accomplish a huge amount. And I really hope they show up in GTA 6, especially with an idea... I'm going to tell you that yet now, just to get it out of my head. I like the idea of Michael becoming basically a criminal uh, Don, you know, big mafia leader kind of a thing, but not actually part of the mafia, and not going wide, because he doesn't care. He cares about going tall. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of what that means. If you know what I mean, you know, there, there's expanding, and then there's expanding. There's, there's a quick visual summary. He 
I could see him being the one who knows a lot of people. You want to do a score, you come to him. You, you want to figure out how to get something, you, you contact him. He knows who to put you in touch with. He gets his he gets his fingers out there in a lot of different pieces. And the whole time he's staying at home trying to take care of his family and, of course, running his movies, which is something he's very legitimately into. I could see him becoming that kind of a person and still running jobs on the side with Trevor, basically just for fun, because both of them enjoy the lifestyle. It's not really about the money for either of them, as I've already said. <laughs> I mean, Trevor starts off with the most money at the beginning of the game, by the way. Like, my, uh, Franklin starts out with like 78 bucks. Michael starts out with like 5,000. Trevor starts out with 100,000. No, none of them care. Not really. And Franklin, of course, being what is effectively one of the, the best drivers, the best you know, organizers, maybe starting to get his own thing going, his own hood going, and actually having made it in the criminal underworld, which is something he wants. He doesn't want to go legit. None of them do. And that is what I was about to lead into. Segway. This is a hard game to discuss and process because ultimately I'm going to be talking about these people as if they're decent human beings and they're not. The morality is very clearly put on the axis of the three main characters, the power trio. As in, Trevor and Michael are both psychopaths to varying degrees. They both enjoy stealing and robbing and fighting and killing. And I mean, Franklin does too. I shouldn't distract him. So all three of them enjoy that. They enjoy the lifestyle. They enjoy being crooks. They, they want to be that kind of person. There's a mission, fairly late game, where Michael goes and gets back together with his family. Why does he do that? What, what, what makes him succeed there where he failed earlier? I'll tell you exactly what. Because he's openly a crook. He wanders around basically like a mafia don. You got a problem with me? Okay, I'm going to threaten you. You don't respond to the threat? I'm going to hit you over the head with a laptop. His own wife says, we just hit him, Michael. He actually does push and, 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 and is that kind of a criminal. <laughs> that kind of a criminal kingpin. He even rants at, at, at Amanda that if you try to send me the cops, I'll put you in the ground just like the rest of them. Now, I don't think he 100% means that because he does love Amanda. But my point is, that's the kind of person he is, and the family responds positively to that. And from that moment on, when he finally starts being honest about it, that's when they all start to respond more positively to him, and his family life gets better. And there's a lot of evidence, I'm not going to go down the list here, I did it during the lore run, that Amanda wants to be the wife of a, of a kingpin. That she wants that kind of a life. The best piece of evidence I could give is while you're going on the mission to Northampton, there's, uh, as you're driving along, you can hear Michael, like a, like a flashback in his head, of Michael arguing with Amanda about why they have to do this. And we don't hear her side of the argument, but everything we hear is that he is trying to convince her of something that she obviously isn't into. She didn't want to leave the game. So, the game also goes out of its way to try and make it so that Michael and Trevor and Franklin are in the right, God, I definitely put that in quote-unquote, by virtue of the setup of things around them, that they are more correct, more morally correct, than everyone else around them, which is really sad when you think about it. But that is how the game is structured. And I was thinking about this, and it kind of clicked with me, because how do you make it seem acceptable, morally acceptable, to be a criminal? Well, it's easy, right? First thing that occurred to me in seconds, you make the government corrupt and evil. Oh. Who are the main antagonists? Haynes and Weston, an FIB agent. And a corporate mogul. Both who are legit, 
both are on the correct side of the law, and both of whom are morally repugnant. I mean, when was the last time you actually questioned whether or not the Rebel Alliance was in the right? <laughs> so while these people are not exactly good people, in the setting that this is, they are they are a lot more correct than a lot of other people are. And a lot of that sits on one specific thing, and that's honesty. All three of them, all three of the power trio, when they start being honest about themselves, to themselves, and to everyone else around them, things start going substantially better for them. Things start improving. Sorry, I'm just checking something. Things start improving substantially for them. When Michael finally accepts being the, the kingpin, who's also a movie producer, sorry for being redundant, thing, his family life improves, he's a lot happier, he connects with people better. When Franklin finally accepts just being the guy who likes to run jobs and wants to actually be on top of things and, you know, move his way up the, the, the ranks, so to speak, of the criminal empire, and finally leaving Tanisha behind, that happens at the very end of the game, and one other thing I'll get to in a minute, things start going a lot better for him. Trevor, when he finally accepts and admits that he really gives a damn about Michael, and that what he really wanted was his friend, and that that lack of that connection of one of the only people who he really connects with, and, important, who isn't afraid of him, that's a key moment right there. And he starts doing a lot better, and he's a lot happier, and, and in the C ending, of course, which is the canon ending, by the way, everyone gets, you know, gets, makes it up, and they're happy, joy, blah, 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 right? It's portrayed as a good thing. This leads to something I want to share, and I even wrote down that Mr. Red, one of my viewers on stream, he actually is the one who posited this idea. One of the other themes, I've gone through like three themes so far, is letting go. Michael needs to let go of the lies and the past and the nonsense. Franklin needs to get let go of the hood and Tanisha. Trevor needs to let go of his own bitterness and anger and, of course, Brad and what he thinks was there. And in all three cases, there's a little bit of letting go of the past, too, just in, in general. Which is funny, because it ties up neatly with GTA 4, doesn't it? But I don't want to get off on that one. I, do want to, I, I don't want to gush too much about this game, for I have much to gush about. The satire does go a little bit too far, I think. Uh, satire and parody is a hard thing to do. And a lot of the things in this game aren't funny to me. The game itself, the core missions, tend to make me laugh more than not. And a lot of the dialogue is just spot on and fantastic. But most of the actual deliberate parody elements do not. You know, the, the news reports, the websites, the adverts. None of that works for me in this one. It's, it's too just, hey look, here's something that Facebook is actually doing. Isn't that funny? No, no, that's just Dilbert at that point. Like, it stops being amusing to me, and I think they tried to push the envelope. Or, that's the wrong way to phrase that, because that was mentioned on stream, too. It's like they were trying to push it towards being more severe, more extreme, and I feel like they it fell a little bit on its face on, as far as the parody element. That is one way I would say GTA V is demonstrably worse than most of its predecessors, going all the way back to three. My opinion, of course. Probably also doesn't help that this game, which came out in 2013, is still topical today in many of its elements of, hey, here's something in real life, isn't that funny? Anywho, <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes here. I, Like I said, I'm kind of jumbling around because it really is all about the big three. 
the 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 money theme. Let's get back to that. At the beginning of the game, Michael goes to a therapist who is a fraud and a hack. I shouldn't even call him a therapist. He's a shrink. I want to use the insulting term there because he's he's Michael's flinging money at him and getting nothing out of it in return because money doesn't solve the issue. Money doesn't always solve every problem, right? When he finally has the big argument and he's honest with himself, then it starts working out a little bit better. Another example of that is... When, when Trevor finally confronts Michael, you know, he walks in. By the way, that scene is one of the best scenes in the game. It's brilliantly directed, brilliantly written, brilliantly scripted. There's incredible tension in the air, and it also neatly gives a perfect excuse for why things didn't explode right then and there. Tracy. It also shows other insights into Trevor's character. You know, there's all sorts of good stuff there. Um, but in that scene, we see that so we see Laszlo. I don't even want to get off on Laszlo, but Laszlo, who only has uh, two scenes in the game, by the way, and several radio things where he's just legitimately unpleasant and and not fun to be around. But the way that's being portrayed is as if money, once again, is the thing that can solve their problems. All she has to do is make it big and become a big star, and everything will work out. But as we find out by the end, what she ends up doing instead is becoming a cam girl. No judgment. And using her dad to help keep her safe, the stalker, and then putting that money aside to, to sign up and go to college to, to try and get a career. Now, you see what my point is. This is why I say it's not just about money is worthless or whatever, because I've heard some people say that before. Money still has value. But that's the point. Value. She Some of the stuff she did, she could only do with money, and some of it she could only do without money. And that lines up neatly. And I, I want to mention something else here. I, I will admit that I think GTA 4, because I, I just reminded myself of this, GTA 4 feels like an overall better written story. But I think GTA 5 is a better presented story. The motion capture, cam uh, the camera work, the uh, dialogue, the animation of, uh, of how they... The, not the animation, wrong word. The, the storyboarding of the cutscenes. The pacing of events. All of that, I feel, is much tighter and much smoother. GTA 4, I felt, had several padding sections. I commented on that during the rumination. And I felt like it kind of started and goed and started and goed at several points. 5 is very smooth throughout. Even if it has an overall weaker story. But I will give 5 this... One of the other scenes that works really well for me, and I know this is going to sound strange, is the torture scene. Because while the torture scene does get a little preachy, and it does, not in this torture scene, but in the scene immediately following it when Trevor gets preachy, but the scene is portrayed exactly as what it is. Horrible. Unpleasant. Brutal. And ugly. A comparison I made several times on the stream was to No Russian over in Modern Warfare 2. I'm not going to discuss that, but... If you're aware of what I'm talking about, you can probably see why I make this parallel. It, it works for me specifically because even though it is a horrible and, and difficult thing to do, and, and anybody who watched the stream could tell, I was literally flinching at times just going through it. I guess that says something about me, um, that a video game can affect me that much. But it was just, ugh. but still, the point is that it was not being in any way glorified. It was not being portrayed as if some kind of thing. It was saying, this is horrible and this is why this is happening, and this is wrong. 
it was effectively a message, but it's a message that was very well told, in my opinion. If you if you if you disagree or agree, I'm I'm curious what you think. Please feel free to put it in the comments. But I do want to mention one other thing. The scene very effectively establishes Haynes, who actually has a far more scenes than Weston, despite being ultimately a far less uh, relevant villain to the overall story. Haynes. <sighs> The simplest way I could put this is there's the guy, there's the poor, poor guy being tortured. And Haynes doesn't ask him a question. He just says, go torture him, loosen him up a bit. Then after the torture happens, he decides, okay, now I'm going to ask a vague question. A very vague question. He didn't even ask the guy what he wanted at first. He just said, all right, tell me about the Azerbaijanis, which is just an incredibly vague question. He doesn't care. He's just having fun with this. He's just enjoying himself. He's doing this. He is ruining and destroying this poor man's life basically because it's fun and because he can get away with it. And, as the game shows, and if you do your research, you'll find out that not only was the person they were torturing completely innocent, but so was the guy they ended up having killed. So they destroyed two people's lives for absolutely no reason whatsoever, other than Haynes's jollies. And after he's done, I'm going to go play racquetball. Like, that's Haynes right there. It is an extremely brutally effective way of establishing just how despicable the character is, which, once again, helps to throw into contrast the main protagonists and why they are shown as in a more positive light. Now, I know not everyone agrees with that, because Trevor's horrible, too. I don't want to sound like he isn't. Remember the scene where Trevor comes back to Deborah and Floyd and brutally murders them? They, they don't even show it. They do a discretion shot, for God's sakes. We just see the, the blood on the windshields. And we find out that Trevor has been pretty horrible to Wade and is basically abusing and misusing him in order to keep him under his control. Then he goes over and uh, <clears throat> buys the strip joint by murdering... Oh, I forget his name. They, they only say it once. The guy who ran the place. And shoving him in a fridge. Speaking of Trevor... <laughs> I do like Trevor as a character. I would never want to go around him, and let's be honest, he should probably die. But Trevor is an extremely well-done character, and I think a lot of that is on Mr. Og. He does a really good job of portraying a large range that Trevor needs to showcase. And I think he does a good job of showcasing him as simultaneously understandable and relatable and empathetic and horrible and monstrous and terrible. Which brings me to an interesting point. If not for... The way... Oh God, this game actually is really well exposited, too. It does excellent exposition, very quickly, very efficiently, and, you, and it's almost always showing, not telling. Um, Michael gets established very quickly and effectively. I mentioned the drinking scene. But more to the point, Michael is really introduced to the character when he sneaks up in the back of the truck that you're driving as Franklin, puts a gun to your head and says, So! And is immediately on top of everything and beats the crap out of Simeon. Simeon, whatever his name is. That's the Michael's establishing moment. Franklin's establishing moment is him trying to talk through around Lamar and figure out what the heck he's doing, stealing the car and boosting and heading back, showing the kind of problems he has, which I'll get to in a second. Trevor's establishing moment is him brutally murdering Johnny from Lost in the Damned. And then on the... Now, this is important. So actually, let me, let me rewind here. His establishing moment is him just standing in the middle of his kitchen, having this screwing, plowing Ashley while watching the news in filth, coarse, gruff, rough, 
gross. I mean, I don't know what else to call that. And then he goes and brutally murders Johnny. And then on the fly, realizes he can use this to advantage, goes and kills off the other Lost members so they can take them to the base so he can wipe out the Lost. He's feral, is the word I like to use, animal. He's violent and dangerous. But part of the reason he's so, da he's so dangerous is because he actually has cunning. He does have the ability to think on his feet. He's really good at improv, which is funny, because that kind of works well with someone like Michael, who can plan things out and also is good at improv. And with someone like Lester, well, yeah. But Trevor, if you're paying attention, they establish him in a way that's almost guaranteed to make people not like him. A lot of people like Johnny. I like Johnny. Then they spend several hours trying to make him more uh, positive. They show, show him in a positive light. They show his sympathetic traits. They show his human traits. They show elements of his character that are positive character traits. Then the Deborah scene happens, and he just brutally murders people. Oh, and cannibalism comes in, too. Funnily enough, cannibalism doesn't come in until Act 3. I bring that up because I actually feel like what happened is they were like, hang on, we're making this guy too sympathetic. We need to make him horrible. I've got an idea. And so they threw in these things to make sure you'd be reminded that, no, really, Trevor's a horrible, disgusting human being. No insult to human beings intended. I don't know if that's actually true. It just feels like it's true. But Trevor, a lot of, a lot of what I like so much about Trevor is, and I know this is going to sound like a strange sentence, if you remove the horrible, the squick, and the violent, what you're left with is an extremely sympathetic human being with a lot of very understandable emotions who goes through a lot of things that I can completely relate to. You know, his desire for friendship, his being abandoned, and how he values uh, the moment and actually being part of the team and accomplishing things and doing things and going beyond his element, pushing his envelope and all that kind of stuff. I don't sympathize with every single one of those steps, but you can see how that's an empathetic, excuse me, sympathetic human being. His character arc, I've already kind of mentioned Michael's character arc. Michael's character arc is being honest with himself and, and accepting being the mob boss. Trevor's character arc is accepting that he's kind of not. That he's more the person who, while he enjoys doing these things, it's more about the doing than the payoff. And it's, it's about being a part of that, a part of that life. Actually having something that means something to him. It is so obvious. There's this wonderful bit where he goes and he robs a nuke, a nuclear weapon, from Merriweather. And he ends up having to give it back. But there, it's so obvious, based on everything in those scenes as that mission is happening, that he just wants to do this to, to have a heist with his friends, with his surrogate family, to be in the game again, to be taking again, something that makes sense, something that processes in his mind. And to show his friends that he can do this. He doesn't need Lester. He, he can make this work himself. And he gets really upset afterwards because he ends up being wrong on both accounts. It's a brilliantly done scene. A sequence of scenes, I should say. Of course, that leaves him with Franklin, who has the least character development of the game because it takes him until basically the last sequence of the game, after the big score, to finally develop. There's a few hints of it before that. I myself have said before that Franklin's kind of a non-character. In hindsight, that's still kind of true. I like Franklin, but he does. I think the reason I call him that is because he doesn't move much uh, in terms of character arc. He's got plenty of characterization, but not kind of character development. But his big shtick is that he can't say no. 
He just does whatever people tell him to, and he just kind of goes along with whatever. He's a follower. He's, he, he feels like he wants to be a leader. And whether he actually does or not is a little more debatable. I would say he probably doesn't actually want to be a leader. It's more like he wants to be the kind of person who makes his own choices. But he spends the whole game doing whatever people tell him to. All the stranger missions, and every time you know some one of the main team tells him to do something, or Lamar tells him to do something, he just kind of goes along with it. And half the time he's like, oh, what am I doing? Why am I so stupid? But he still does it until he's given the options. <laughs> so... The options kind of really ties this in, you know, A, B, or C. Now, based on construct, we can tell a few things. Uh, for those of you not aware, there was originally supposed to be a fourth ending, which kind of got ejected. But C was then was originally repurposed into being Killing Franklin, and you'd play as Lamar for a bit. That was ejected, and at that point, from what I understand, asterisk, it looks like the endings were restructured from bad ending to normal ending and good ending, the, the three. The bad ending is when you kill Michael. Everything makes that clear. Trevor never talks to you again. He's gone. He leaves the narrative. And Michael's dead. And it's it's made out to be a horrific thing. Michael's finally gotten his life back in order. His, his girl's going to college. He's so excited. He's happy to see you. You, you decide to kill him. It's this horrible betrayal. His family tells you to get the hell out of Dodge. Everyone hates you for it. And you don't get Jack out of it. And none of your problems are solved. So that's the bad ending. Killing Trevor is the normal ending. Let's be honest, killing Trevor is probably a good choice for this setting. However much I sympathize with the character and the actor being amazing, the, the, the flat reality is that Trevor should probably not exist anymore. So taking him out, sure. But at the end of it, you'll notice that they go back to the lies and the deception rather than being honest with themselves. Both Michael and Franklin do that. So that kind of shows that they've not, you know, they're, they're kind of getting back into the rut which kind of implies that things are going to go badly that from that on that point on. And, once again, none of their problems are actually solved long term. It is option C that really brings things to fruition, because option C is a wonderful confluence of many things. Thing number one, money doesn't buy everything. One of the other characters, I actually wrote his name down just to make sure I wouldn't forget it, from Red Dead Redemption, Leviticus Cornwall. You remember him? RDR2, specifically, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I am right. I can even picture the scene. <laughs> Dave, Devin Weston's a moron because not only is he super rich and he thinks money can buy everything, but he thinks he's so above it that he doesn't have to pay for no other reason than because screw you. He's literally a troll, like an internet troll, doing it for the lulls, as the, as the phrase goes. And that's literally his motivation. And he, I mean, he basically gets Molly killed over nothing. And I know what you're thinking. How does he get Molly killed? Who do you think called Molly to tell her that Michael was coming? And what do you think he told her? Because when Michael arrives, she's terrified and running for her life. Think about it. Devin just kind of does whatever because it amuses him. He's like Cartman from South Park. Except stupider <laughs> and richer. So... <clears throat> He thinks he can buy off everyone and pay off everything. Haynes thinks he's above it all because he can just kill whoever and use them until the end of time. Stretch, who is Stretch again? But Stretch still actually lines into this. Stretch thinks that because he's OG, because he's part of this old gang, that he can just go along with things. There's this bit where he basically flat out admits, I'm going to sign you up to be a sacrifice to make things cool with, I think, the Ballas. 
the ballast, ballast. Yeah, I'm right, I'm right. <clears throat> and he just kind of expects you to go along with that because he's the one who says he did it because he's the one with the money. He's the one with the influence, right? That's how that goes, right? You see there's another theme kind of creeping up here. And by the way, when we go after Stretch, his buddies bail on him. There's also Chong, or Cheng, excuse me, Cheng. He's actually, I don't even know why he's on this list, really, but he's there, and he's a moron who thought he could get a better deal than working with Trevor. And he thought he could throw money and men at things, and he is wrong uh, all three times he tries to do that. See, there's, there's one exception here, and I want to share this exception, because it helps to bring this, this theme into focus, the, the attached theme to the value theme. Martin Madrazo, who's the, who's the criminal kingpin of Los Santos, he's the one who's, who built wide, he lives through the events of this game. Why? It's because he understood value and he respected personal power. He looked at the power trio, and what does he do when Michael tears down his house? Hits him with a bat once and says, pay for this. Okay, that's actually pretty reasonable. Doesn't kill him. Doesn't threaten his family or whatever. Just says, make this straight. And when he does, we're cool. Then, later on, they go to meet him. And he's like, hey, I want you to do this thing for me. For a favor. And they're like, okay, sure. And then, you know, they, they kind of get kicked out of town. But when a peace offering is offered of the statue and his wife being returned, he accepts it. He decides that the best possible thing is to stay as far away from the power trio as he can. And that's smart. Because he knows if he tries to go after them, that has a dice, that, that's, a, that's a coin flip at that point. They could either succeed at killing them, problem solved, or fail, in which case he's dead. He understands that value of personal power. And how personal power always trumps political power. And that's part of the reason I call them the power trio. Because they just kind of, with their unique skill set and connections, they just kind of push their way through whatever's in their way. That's ending C in a nutshell. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll go after this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, and we'll take them down. And all their problems are solved. And funnily enough, like so often happens with Krennic-type characters, no one seems to care that they're dead. In fact, one of the funniest things is after you kill Weston, oh, I forget his name, but the guy in charge of Merriweather is basically like, hey, thanks for that. We're going to do this. Um, we're going to leave you alone, and you're going to leave us alone. Please leave us alone. <laughs> That's the problem with people who don't understand value. Someone like Weston, he's the best example of this. Someone like Weston thinks he's above it all. But the moment anyone decides to push him, they're gone. One of the analogies that I like to use here is rebellion. Get that Star Wars thing building up again. But no, really. Historically speaking, people in power have the ability to push people. Because people don't want to, to take up arms. I mean, that's tiring and expensive. And God, I gotta get up and grab a pitchfork. And Okay, I'm being disingenuous. But it is legitimately a difficult thing to do. To, to get started on a revolution or a rebellion. But what tends to happen, what has tended to happen historically, is those in power, those in political power, will always push that too far. They'll, they'll abuse and misuse and be oppressive and be corrupt until finally people have had enough. And when people have had enough, well then they say, 
okay, now I'm going to do something about it. And all it takes is one person or one group who's sufficiently sick of it to be able to say no and start things. There's this wonderful line, I'm not going to quote word for word because I don't like cussing, but it's a line Trevor says, I want Weston to see exactly what happens. I want Weston to see that all his money in the world cannot save him from one person himself who wants, who thinks he's a dick and just wants to kill him. Because once you push too far, nothing's going to save you from that. It doesn't matter how much money you fling at it. It doesn't matter how much connection you have or political affluence you have. And that is, of course, an understanding of value. One of the other big themes in this game is loyalty and being able to work with people and you know maintaining good connections, right? Lester is probably the biggest actual example of this. He, he goes out of his way to be on everyone's good side constantly. And of course he freaking does. He has a brain. But this comes up constantly. When they do the jewelry store heist, everyone just goes their separate ways, knowing they're going to get paid. Why? Because Lester and Michael have the rep that there's no question that they're going to pay. There's no treachery here. There's no David Weston going on here. They know they're going to get paid, and thus there's no problems. There's no drama, right? That's value, the value of loyalty in that case, the value of being a professional. Another thing that the game kind of touches on is the difference between people who are pros, like the power trio, and people who are not Probably my favorite example of that is the, uh, the raid where you go in with Dave and Haynes and they're both bumbling idiots and Michael and Trevor are the ones who are actually accomplishing things the whole time because they're actually better at it than the FIP members. God, that's sad. But that's why I bring up Madrazo. Sorry, get back to him for a second. Because he survives the events of the games because he recognizes the value of the power trio and he recognizes to leave well enough alone. That may not sound like a lot, but that makes him smarter than most of the villains in this game. <sighs> I like this game. I like this game a whole lot. And I very much enjoy a lot of what it does, and I loved replaying it. I, I would be cool with replaying this game again in the distant future when I have time to do so. But I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one. I'll see you next time, guys.